you know, as I get that ready, there's one of the songs that they sung during praise sing that was a true blessing to me. I remember when I was first coming to the Adventist church, that song by Michael W. Smith, Above All, where it uh, points out, uh, above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders. And it gets to that chorus, crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. That really always struck me. And, uh, you know, you think about Jesus and the cross, which we're doing this weekend. Our theme has been lingering at the cross. How many of you guys were here last night? Any of you? If you weren't, we have it on live stream. Pastor Rob shared that message. And then we have another session that's happening tomorrow at 11 a.m. And uh, we'll be continuing this Lingering at the Cross series. And Aubrey Porter will be sharing with us. So do come out to that. Uh, what better thing to do on this Easter weekend but to reflect upon the cross of Christ? Um, so with that said, I'm going to tell a story about David Rice Atchison. James Polk's term as the 11th United States president expired on Saturday, March 3rd, 1849. President-elect Zachary Taylor did not want to be inaugurated on Sunday. He preferred the ceremonies to be held on Monday, March 5th. Yet the United States could not be without a leader even for 24 hours. So the next person in line was President Pro Tem of the Senate, who happened to be the Senator David Rice Atchison. He therefore took over the office for that Sunday. Atkinson's last day of work in Congress was so heavy and busy that he went to bed very late Saturday night, exhausted. Have you guys ever had that? Exhausted, long day of work. He slept soundly, even snoring, all through the day that he was president, <laughs> which was March 4th, 1849. What an important office to hold, and he slept through it. How sad to be president for a day and not remember a single minute. The Bible also teaches that during some of the most important and crucial moments, God's people have gone to sleep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon the moments that led up to Christ's crucifixion, his sacrifice, his being laid to rest in the tomb, and his resurrection, Lord, we just pray that you'll bring our thoughts to that hour. We weren't there 2,000 years ago, but our imaginations, you've created them. You're able to work in our minds to bring us to that moment, Lord. So help us in our mind's eye to see Christ crucified for me as we reflect upon you this hour. It's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. It is Thursday night. The supper shared with the 12 men that surrounded the table of their dearest of friends has come to an end. It has been long, exciting day that has been filled with much anticipation. These 12 exit their hostess home into a garden where, there, where three of them continue to follow on a little further than the other nine. Night has fallen 
and the meal that they have shared begins to have its effect on them. They sense a change in their friend's countenance. It's one of sorrow and deep distress. They are told to stay and watch as their dear and precious friend goes off a little further to pray. These three men are unable to watch due to the fact that they are succumbing to the exhaustion of the full day of activities. Their dear friend rises from prayer and finds them asleep. He awakens them and asks them to stay awake and intercede in prayer for him. As they linger in their spots, he goes off to pray once again. And again, after prayer, he finds them, guess what? Asleep. After awakening them again for the second time, he goes back to praying. After his third prayer, he finds them asleep once again. Oh, how hard it is for them to stay awake, especially at such a moment that their prayers are so badly needed by their dearest friend. Their friend is about to encounter his severest trial that he has ever experienced in his whole entire earthly life. Here they are, Peter, James, and John, lingering along with the rest of the eight disciples, beholding their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, behold him in a state of deep distress and sorrow. They don't know what to do. What they don't know at this point is this will become one of their most unforgettable sleepless nights that they will ever experience. And they are not alone in what will be a sleepless and disturbing night for many, many more other individuals caught lingering at the judgment hall, caught lingering at the cross, and caught lingering at the tomb. Before the crucifixion of Christ, there was no rest enjoyed by any of those involved in this pivotal historical marker. With the late night arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane by the detachment of troops and officers from the temple, three trials that went from the midnight hours to the wee hours of the morning, where Jesus was being taken from the judgment hall of the high priest to that of Pilate, then to King Herod, and again back to Pilate, and finally to the cross. No rest for all involved in this. None. Judas. Judas was one who definitely could not sleep. He was full of shame and remorse and guilt. His conscience was violated by his egregious betrayal of Jesus. In desperation, in the wee hours of the morning, to undo his betrayal, he goes before the high priest to find restitution, but could not find it there. How sad not to find restitution in the church. Help. Not one offered by the priests. Not one help. As a result of no rest for his guilty conscience and hopeless despair, he ends it by hanging himself. Peter, also not prepared for the hour, had no rest. 
He was weighed down by his outright denial of his Messiah and Lord. Denied him three times. He, didn't know, he did not know how to live with himself. But because of lingering close to the judgment hall, he was able to capture hope from the compassionate, merciful look of Christ looking in his direction. Even though Peter had a sleepless night, he had a reassuring look of Jesus that he was forgiven, that he was accepted in the beloved, and that he was not cast out. Then there were the Roman soldiers. They had no rest because they were called on to be involved in the arrests, trial, and interrogation of Jesus. Later, they would be utilizing the crucifixion of Christ, and then later, the guarding of his tomb. Pilate, the king, I mean the governor, I'm sorry, governor of Judea, was awakened way before his time of rising for the day. Can you imagine those times you get woken up and it's way before the time you ever wake up? That's Pilate. So his sleep was disturbed. Being the governor of Judea, he needed to preside over the trial of Jesus, a trial which he would never be able to erase from his memory that would end up incurring many, many sleepless nights, I'm sure, for him there and onward. And we can't forget about Pontius Pilate's wife either. Her sleep was disturbed as well. On the screen, you have Matthew 27, 19. The Bible says, While he, that is Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have what? Suffered many things today in a what? A dream. What are you doing when you're dreaming? You're sleeping. So her sleep was disturbed as well. And she was suffering many things in a dream because of him. From this unjust trial, Jesus is condemned to be crucified. He is led to Golgotha, the place where he was to be crucified with two others. So the types of people we see lingering with restlessness around the closing scenes of Christ's life, you know, there in the garden with restlessness, in the judgment hall, at the cross, and near the tomb, are such people like the priests, the scribes, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, Pharisees on the conservative side of the church, Sadducees on the liberal side of the church, Roman soldiers, the common people, disciples of Christ, the women such as Martha, Mary Magdala, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we can bet that Satan and his host of evil angels were there as well, lingering there in the Garden of Gethsemane, lingering there in the trial hall of Pilate, the high priest, there lingering at the cross, and there lingering by the tomb, making sure that tomb would never open. And we are even told God and holy angels were beside the cross, cloaked in that darkness that enveloped the cross of Christ. When you read the gospel, it talks about a great darkness that, that shrouded the cross of Christ. And here's a statement from the book, From Heaven and, uh, with Love, uh, book Ellen White wrote, page 503, it states this, In that thick darkness, God's presence was what? Hidden. I love this part. God and holy angels were where? Beside the cross. 
The father was with his what? Son. Yet, his presence was not revealed. And we know Jesus didn't feel his presence because you remember what he said? Eli, Eli, lama tabachanai. What does that mean? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did Jesus feel God's presence? Did it mean that his presence wasn't there? How about you? When you feel in those dark moments, God, where are you? God's there. God is there. How God was with his son, and so is he is with you. So God the Father and the holy angels were lingering by the side of the cross. In the midst of those who had no rest, there is one who did experience a rest, though. A different type of rest. And it was from the unlikeliest place that could be thought of. The crucified thief on the side of Christ. This particular thief, you know, from the book From Heaven with Love Again, page 500, and the way has this to say, had seen and heard Jesus, but had been turned away from him by the what? Priests and rulers. This is when he was free. You know, we see the thief, he's there with Christ. That's the only time we really see him. But he was a free person before all that. He heard the teachings of Christ, but who discouraged him? The church. Seeking to stifle conviction, he had plunged into what? Sin. Until he was arrested and condemned. On the cross, where is he now? He's on the cross. Interesting. Right there beside Jesus. He saw the great religionists ridicule Jesus. What a shock. He heard the upbraiding speech taken up by his companion in guilt, so the other thief. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Among the passerbys, he heard many repeating Jesus' words and telling of his works. His memory, the deceased memory, was being reignited with the things that he encountered when he was a free man. The conviction came back that this was who? The Christ. We have to realize the Jewish economy and faith was built upon the hope of the coming Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for that. It dawns on him that this person, the hope of the nation, is right here on this cross. Turning to his fellow criminal, he said, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? The dying thieves no longer had anything to fear from man. But on one of them pressed the conviction that there is a God to fear a future to cause him to tremble, and now his life history was about to close. When condemned for his crime, the thief had become despairing, but strange. See here, it says that he was despairing. What's another word for despairing? Say maybe restless, you know, with the weight of his terrible life that he lived. But there's a word there. I love this word, but. Don't you? It, it, it basically does away with what was said before, and, and now it's a different chapter. But strange, tender thoughts now sprang up. The Holy Spirit illuminated his mind, and little by little, the chain of evidence joined together in Jesus. What type of Jesus at the state? The one that's healing people, the one that's casting out demons and resurrecting the dead? Is that the Jesus? That's what it says. In Jesus, mocked, 
and hanging on the cross. Oh, it was easy to see when he was healing and raising the dead. Oh, he's the Messiah that we were looking for. But what about when he's on the cross? In Jesus, mocked and hanging on the cross, he saw the Lamb of God. Hmm, makes me think, was this thief hearing from John the Baptist on that river, the Jordan River, when he pointed out and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? He pictured at that very moment the beaten and bruised Jesus, the one that's ridiculed by religious leaders. They should have known, and yet he sees through it all. Holy Spirit illuminates his mind. It says here, Hope mingled with anguish in his voice as the dying soul cast himself on a dying Savior. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Quickly, the answer came. How quickly did this answer come from Jesus? Quickly. No, it wasn't like it was, I'm going to put that on hold. Anytime that you call out for salvation from Jesus, it comes quickly. Quickly the answer came, soft and melodious the tone, full of love and power the words. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine what that would look like. Verily I say unto thee today, thou. He's saying this in the day that he doesn't look like a, a king, doesn't look like a messiah, at least the one that the rabbis and Pharisees portrayed. He's saying to that thief, today when I'm bleeding and bruised and I've been rejected, today thou shall be with me in paradise. What an assurance. A person, a criminal, is being assured. With longing heart, Jesus had listened for some expression of faith from his disciples. He had heard only the mournful words. We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. How grateful then to the Savior was the utterance of faith and love from who? From where? The most unlikeliest place. The dying thief. While even the disciples doubted, the poor thief called Jesus what? Lord. Where was he at, by the way? He was on the cross. He was on the cross, and he recognizes him as Lord. No one acknowledged him on the cross save the penitent, the, the penitent thief. And I love this part. Saved at the 11th hour. Would that give you rest for your soul? To know that you are assured of forgiveness? As terrible of a life as that thief, that, that, that thief led? Oh, I think it would. Jesus was acknowledged as the sin bearer. And I love this part. It is his royal right to save all who come to God by him. That's royalty in God's eyes. Whew. The repentant thief was able to find rest before he ultimately rested in the dust of the earth. How is this possible? How was this thief able to find this rest? How are we able to find rest like this thief? This thief? Well, I believe part of this is answered in the parable. It's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, where it reads, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, but as he was not able to pay. Keep that in the back of your mind. He was not able to pay. 
His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Different currency. One was uh, 10,000 talents. This is 100 denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Now notice it doesn't say that he couldn't pay this. This other guy who owed him the 100 denarii, it doesn't say, oh, he couldn't pay it. But the guy, the 10,000 talents, it says he could not pay it. So he goes to this guy who owes him this 100 denarii and he says, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So my point in bringing forth this parable is not to talk about the importance of you and I forgiving each other of our trespasses and sins. We ought to do that. Should we? Right? We should have a forgiving heart towards one another. I bring our attention to the forgiven debtor of 10,000 talents to bring out another point. Consider the debtor that owed 100 denarii. How long would it take to pay that debt off? Any guesses? Well, we're told in the Bible that a denarius was usually considered a day's wage. So it would take about 100 days to pay off that debt. More than three months, depending on what the payment is. Maybe longer, right? Probably was longer. You know, wouldn't be spending your whole day's wage on your debt. You couldn't live, right? So, so what about 10,000 talents? Now, these are not 10,000 denarii. This is another form of currency, another value here. These are 10,000 talents. How long would it take to pay this debt? Any guesses? It would take 200,000 years to pay it. Did any of you guys owe that much? Some of us have debt, I'm sure. <laughs> Let me say that again. It would take 200,000 years to pay off 10,000 talents. Wow. Now, could you or I pay this? Obviously not. In the parable, it actually says that he was not able to pay it. He wasn't. It would take, I don't know how many lifetimes, I think around 2,000 maybe lifetimes. I don't know, maybe that's too high, but that's a lot of lifetimes that none of us are able to live. It's an impossibility. Now, if you had this type of debt and the creditors were after you for it, how would you sleep? Sticking with our theme, restlessness. Would you be restless? What would be your reaction? How would you deal with this, right? Might be like, how did I get to this place? Here's the thing, though. That 10,000 talents represents your and my burden of sin. You and I are unable, we are unable to pay it. We individually have our own 200,000-year debt. And this includes every individual, not just you, but the person sitting by you, 
All those here in this room have their own personal 10,000 talents of debt. Owe the creditor. 200,000 years for every single one of you. That's crazy. And that's not just you here in this church. That's the whole world. And you know what this is doing? This is robbing you and me in the world of rest, peace, and life. No rest is afforded you or me or the world until every cent is paid for. As a result, we are all wearied with our efforts to pay for what our sin has indebted us to. And the deceptive thing of it all is that there is a whole lot of people in this world of ours who think they can pay this debt off by their own good works. Right? I don't need Jesus. I don't need God. I got this. And they don't realize the debt. 200,000 years. No wonder why the world is restless and in hopeless despair, full of depression and anxiety. They think going to man is going to help them, and it doesn't. It leaves them empty, even more so. Because nothing that we do can satisfy the creditor. Nothing. And yet there is another sort of restlessness that the cross causes in the lives of those who love that sin debt. You know, you know people who like to rack up the credit card. They don't care. It's mom and dad's credit card or whoever. And it's like, that's not my money. And then they get their own credit card and it racks up and they just love spending and spending. They love it. Well, there's a lot of people out there who love their sin as well. They love the pleasure it gives But you know, the cross convicts them of that sin. They don't like that conviction that it sends. The cross tells them, repent, turn away. They don't want to. So they mock. They scoff at the cross and the sacrifice of Christ and hope that they will silence the call of repentance that the cross brings to their troubled soul. And they're restless. Because the cross won't leave them alone. It just won't. It just won't. It is only as we linger at the cross and contemplate its message will we be awakened to its hope that it offers, the rest it offers, and the peace it gives. You see, in the cross of Christ is presented to you and me the payment for our 10,000 talent debt. As we linger and behold the cross, we behold the act that gives God the right to forgive you of every last sense of that tremendous 10,000 talent debt of which you could never pay. And because God is unwilling that anyone should perish, all will be brought to the cross as were those on the day of Christ's literal crucifixion. They will be brought to face its true imports for them as did that particular thief who saw in it his everlasting hope and peace and life. In John chapter 12, verse 32, our scripture reading states, Jesus says, I and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will do what? How many people? All peoples to myself. This passage has spoken to me in a new way since I was putting together this message. You know, Jesus doesn't say if I am lifted up from the earth, I may draw some people. Is, it, is Jesus using hyperbole here? You know, when he says all people? I don't think he is. You know what hyperbole is, right? It's an exaggerated term you may use, but you don't really mean all. You're just saying all. You know, everybody believes this. 
you know, we say that sometimes, right? And that's hyperbole, right? Does everybody believe what you believe? No. <laughs> but is Jesus using hyperbole when he says this? I don't believe so. Not, not one moment. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, which he was, we know he was lifted up. That's why we're here in 2022, Easter weekend, right? What will he do when he's lifted up? Will draw all peoples to myself. It doesn't say he's, he's going to not be able to draw people to himself. No, he's gonna, he will draw all people to himself. In other words, the world, the whole world has and is and will be drawn to the cross of Christ to contemplate its message and influence. None will escape. The world will be brought to linger at and behold the cross of Christ. Let's consider the reality of this point. I'm going to go skip ahead right here to this thing. This is found in Manuscript Releases, volume 21, page 36. Notice what uh, Ellen White says here. Hanging upon the cross. What does it say there? Christ was the gospel. You see right here, the cross is the gospel to get the attention of all the inhabitants of the earth. So going back, let's consider the reality of this point. Notice, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom, what's the gospel? Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel, right? And this gospel of the kingdom will be what? Preached. Notice that word again, will be. May, it doesn't, he doesn't say may. Will be preached where? There's that word again. In all the world. Is that the trees and the rocks and the animals? Or is that people? People. In all the inhabited world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's the cross being lifted up that brings the end. Revelation 14, verse 6. We're Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Heaven the what? The everlasting gospel. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel, right? The everlasting gospel. To preach to those who dwell on the earth. And so that we can have it clear, John makes it very clear. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Anybody being left out? No. Now notice further what is said in manuscript releases here. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. Now we have a message. What's the message? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Will not our church members keep their eyes, so she's appealing to you as church members, me, myself, and the Christian world, of course. Keep their eyes fixed where? On a crucified, risen Savior, in whom, what? Their hopes of eternal life are centered. Where, where, where's your hope centered at? The cross is our message. It is what? The cross is our message, our arguments, our doctrine, our warning to the impotence, our encouragement for the sorrowing, the hope for every believer. The hope for who? Every believer. Isn't this what the thief saw? The Lamb of God on the cross? Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. He saw it. Do you see it? If we can what? What's that word there? Restlessness at the cross? What's this? If we can 
awaken an interest in men's minds that will cause them to fix their eyes on Christ, we may step aside and ask them only to continue to fix their eyes upon the Lamb of God. He whose eyes are fixed on Jesus will leave all. He will die to selfishness. He will believe in all the word of God, which is so gloriously and wonderfully exalted in Christ. As a sinner sees Jesus as he is, an all-compassionate Savior, hope and assurance takes possession of his soul. That's what happened to the thief. The helpless soul. Are we helpless to pay that 200,000-year debt? Do we see ourselves that way? That's a problem. We don't see ourselves that way. But when we do see ourselves that way, it says that there's a helper. The helpless soul is cast without any reservation upon who? Jesus. It is as people linger and contemplate the cross that they are awakened. That's what we saw in that statement. And it is the cross that all will be faced with. They're going to be faced with it. And evidence of this very fact, remember I told you if he be lifted up, he'll draw all peoples to himself? That's not just you today. That's always been true. From the moment sin entered to the moment it will be dealt with, it's always the cross, the arms that reach from the beginning of time to the end of time covers all people. So people have been faced with it. You know, an example of that today is atheists. Atheists spend their time denying the cross. You know, I was trying to figure this one out. You know, how many organizations out there that are, that are created to um, fight the lie of, Sa- of Santa Claus? Have you heard of any? You know, Santa Claus doesn't exist, you know, that type of stuff. And I was trying to look it up on Google, and I'm like, what, you know, is there any term for somebody who denies the existence of Santa Claus? <laughs> and uh, I couldn't find anything, but there was something on Google, and I thought that was kind of funny. Um, it said, somebody who denies the existence of Santa Claus is a rebel without a clause. <laughs> a rebel without a clause. Well, I guess we're all rebels for those who don't believe in Santa Claus, which I, you know, we don't. But an atheist, for instance, organizations are set up to infiltrate institutions with the idea that God does not exist. Now, if he didn't really exist, like Santa Claus doesn't, would you need organizations to tell people that he doesn't exist? need philosophies to do that. I don't think so. The reason they do is because they, they, they wouldn't do this if the cross wasn't a reality being presented to their mind. It's being put before their mind. Remember, God is going to, he, he will do what? Draw all peoples to himself when he's lifted up. The worldlings scoffs and mocks at the Christian in the gospel. They proclaim because they, like the atheists, deny the reality of the cross of Christ as being presented. Because of the reality of the Christ, let me say this again. Because they, like the atheists, are faced with the reality of the cross of Christ being presented to their mind, and it's an unwelcome thought. And in order to escape its lingering power, they must mock and scoff and persecute. Do you think the worldling likes the cross? Do you think they like the gospel? When you converted to Christianity and you were a part of your group of friends living in the world, and then you converted, what happened? Well, your friends like, wow, that's a great idea. We should all become Christians too. Is that what happened? No, not really. 
They probably mocked at you and scoffed, like, what in the world? So again, why this restlessness? Well, part of it is because of our sin debt, as we already talked about. There are those who are restless because they are tirelessly trying to pay for it. While others prefer their sin debt and thus fight and mock and try to get the conviction of the cross out of their mind. They don't like being made aware of the uncomfortable truths the cross brings. God needs to give us, I don't want you to miss this point, God needs to give us restless nights for the very reason we need to be made awake. God rather have us restless, tossing and turning, not being able to sleep in our sin, than without an opportunity to know and experience the full redemption that has been offered to every man and every woman and every boy and every girl. We need to be awakened. This made me think about that when I wrote that, we need to be awakened. What flashed in my mind was Revelation chapter 18, where an angel is sent from where? Heaven. To illuminate the world with the glory of God. What's the glory of God, by the way? It's his character. Where is his character expressed to the nth degree in this world? On the cross. The self-sacrificing love of God. No wonder why Ellen White states, hanging upon the cross was the gospel. It's where that self-sacrificing love is displayed. That's who God is. So this Revelation 18, an angel is sent from heaven to illuminate. When you're illuminating a thing, what are you doing? You're bringing lights. And where is he bringing light to? The world. So that must mean if there's a need for illumination, what state is the world in? Darkness. Would that cause, if you're somebody, and I'm, my wife will tell, me, will tell you this, I, I, I sleep like a rock, you know. She envies me for that. She wakes to the still small, you know, voice or, you know, little noises in the house. I don't. But anyways, um, there's at times, and I think we can all have this in common, that you want to sleep longer. You want to sleep in, and somebody... Maybe it's your spouse or sibling that comes into your room and turns on the lights. It's dark in your room. Do you want to be awake by that bright light? Or it's like, shut those lights off. You grab the covers, cover your head, and roll around, right? Why is that? Because you don't want to be awakened. That light is unwelcomed. You want to sleep. So Jesus tells us in Revelation 18, an angel is sent from heaven to illuminate the world with the glory of God. Spreads throughout the whole world. In other words, that sibling of yours, that spouse of you turning on the light, that is God turning on the light in the darkness of our world to awaken everyone. Therefore, as a result of him turning on the light, so many are restless. They want to go back to sleep. They want to continue to sleep. While Jesus is trying to wake them up to the salvation he has wrought out for every person on earth. And just like Jesus trying to keep Peter, James, and John from sleeping, there, is the, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, so God is trying to do what, that very same thing in these darkest hours of earth's history. As witnessed on that Friday of Christ's crucifixion, several types of people were there, some by choice, 
Others, not by choice. And still others just happen to be in and around because of circumstances or a vocation, a job they had, or a political office they held. The circumstances for many of that time was the Passover weekend. By the way, Passover was yesterday, right? You guys got a calendar. Not always does Easter and Passover correlate, but did this year. Um, Passover weekend, right? Biggest holiday for the Jews, right? Gather there. So it happened to be there because of the circumstances. For Pilate and Herod, it was their political office. Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod, king of Judea. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, 26, we see that a person by the name of Simon of Cyrene was forced to bear the cruel instrument of torture upon his own shoulders and back. It was not his choice to be a part of this lifting up of Jesus. But here he is, as a result of happening to be around, was put in a role that he never imagined he would be in. Can you imagine that? Simon Cyrene just walking through and Roman soldiers, we need somebody to carry the cross and you'll do. And you, can be, and you can bet that he was restless with contemplating the meaning of all this. Why is this happening to me? Who is this person and what is this all about? Now these same types of groups of people will be represented by the all peoples in every generation, especially the last one of which I believe we are. So we must see we are like these very ones who lingered at the judgment hall, who lingered at the cross, who lingered at the tomb as Jesus was being laid in it. It was you and I represented in those soldiers guarding the tomb all night without a wink of sleep. We were those who went home that Sabbath night and could not sleep easy because of our hand in Christ's condemnation and crucifixion. We were suffering under the weight of our 10,000 talents of sin, being robbed of rest and peace in life. This was true until Christ came and forgave us all those 10,000 talents of debts owed the broken law, and he carried it himself. He did this by becoming you and me. He became our 10,000 talents of sin debt by becoming your and my sin. The Bible says in Galatians that he was made to be sin. That 10,000 talents of debt? He was made to be that. In doing this, he zeroed it out through his cruel trial, scourging, and final expiring breath of it is finished. Your debt of sin was paid for full and complete by Jesus' shed blood on that cross. That 200,000 years, not just yours, not just your neighbor, not just the one you're sitting by here this morning, Every person's 200,000 years of debt was laid on him on that cross. And as a result of his hard labor with carrying the weight of our sin and completing the work of paying off that immense debt, he rested in perfect sleep on the seventh day Sabbath. It is this literal rest of Jesus, albeit all day Sabbath in, the, in that dark, cold tomb, that we can have perfect rest and peace from the weight of our sin. Why? Because it has been removed and canceled out. You are free. You are free. 
That's what the cross says to you. You are free. Matthew 11, 28, 29. No wonder Jesus says this. Come to me, all you who, what? Labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. We'll find what? Rest for your souls. It is because of Christ's rest in the tomb and his resurrection that guarantees those who sleep in the dust of the earth will be resurrected to an immortal life of peace and rest. We have this right here. Right when he died and he resurrected, it says in Matthew 27, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And what happened? The graves were open. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, these are the first fruits, were what? Notice that the Bible actually says many bodies of the saints who had what? Fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection. So they came out of the graves when? After his what? Resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. It is those who enter and receive their rest in Christ that will be awakened to sleep no more. There's a very old tale about a farmer. I'm wrapping up now. So if you guys wonder, is he wrapping up? I am now. <laughs> there is a very old tale about a farmer going to an annual spring fair in search for some help. In the old days, when the country was much more rural and agriculturally driven, young men from nearby towns and villages would go to spring fairs in search of employment. Farmers in need of help would go to these same fairs in search of capable farmhands. This one particular old farmer would always ask each young candidate the same question. What can you do? Well, the first lad that he approaches appears capable of enough, judging by, the, by looks alone. The young man is tall, strong, and clean in appearance. So the farmer leads off with his question about what he can do. To which the young man simply answers, I can sleep on a windy night. That is the extent of his reply. That's it. The old farmer, somewhat befuddled by this, thinks, maybe the young man didn't hear me or misheard me. So he, asks, he repeats the question. The reply is the same. I can sleep on a windy night. Thinking the boy to be not only dim-witted, but insolent as well, the farmer moves on. You know, what do you still have for you? As the day progresses, the man finds no one to his liking. He's going from one young person to another person. He's not finding anybody. The fair is finally winding down. And the first young man that he spoke with is still there. Apparently, other would-be employers were also put off by his one-sentence reply about the ability to sleep on a windy night and passed on hiring him. So out of sheer desperation, the farmer circles back to this youth and asks a third time, what can you do? The young man looks him in the eye and replies for a third time, I can sleep on a windy night. Exasperated, but in dire need for help, the farmer caves and offers a young man a job. The lad accepts. Well, the weeks and months go by, and the farmer is greatly impressed with the boy's work ethic and attention to detail. They operate as good as a good team. The man marvels at his good fortune to have chosen wisely. He quickly forgets his initial misgivings. 
and why he had even been hesitant to hire him in the first place. That is, that is, until the night of the big storm. The farmer wakes to a fierce wind blowing across his land. He hears the sound of tree branches snapping, rain pelting his window, and the old farmhouse itself moaning in distress. Jumping out of bed, he dresses and heads for the bunkhouse where the young hired lad is sound asleep. What is this young lad doing? Sleeping. Ah, he's me. The farmer tries to wake the boy, but to no avail. He can't wake the boy. Both alarmed and discouraged, the old man decides to make the rounds himself and secure the farm. But nothing needs attending. The cattle and horses are safely in the barn, both fed and watered. Tools are in place, clean and shining. The barn doors all have been securely fastened. Dry matches lay close to filled kerosene lanterns. Their wicks freshly trimmed, ready for emergency use. In the fields, stacks of hay have been covered and tightly lashed with, ground, with sturdy ground stakes. Not one has blown away. Formerly, brittle fence posts have been recently replaced with sturdy, hard new wood. Wires are tight, locks in place. Even the rain gutters have been recently cleaned. Water pours off the roofs harmlessly and unhampered. The inventory goes on and on and on. All is secure. Nothing has been left to chance. All is in order. As the old man leans into the wind, fighting his way back to his home and a warm bed, he recalls, ponders, and smiles at the words spoken by a young man several months back, I can sleep on a windy night. You know who else was able to find rest for his soul besides the farmhand, that young boy? The thief who died with Christ on the cross. But not only him, it was Jesus. He, Jesus, was able to rest because he was prepared for the craziest and most terrible storm that this universe has ever experienced. He slept soundly in the tomb all Sabbath hours. You know, I want to encourage you. You should read uh, those chapters about uh, in Desire of Ages about Jesus' death on the cross and what all happened. That was a storm. That was a storm. Just how Ellen White describes that. It was a huge storm. And he was prepared. He went through it and he rested. The last generation to live on this world will soon be encountering a most terrible storm. Jacob's time of trouble. Daniel describes it this way in Daniel 12.1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. You know, in these times, the trials we are going through right now, where's God? This verse tells you. He stands up and what is he doing? Stands watch over the sons of your people. He's standing watch over you. He sees all that's happening in our world. He sees it. He, he's not aloof. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in a book. How will our generation be able to have peace and rest in, that surpasses all understanding when this trouble is unleashed in the world? Spirit of Prophecy has this to say in the book, Desire of Ages, page 83. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful what? 
hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in who? In him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. It is only as we linger in contemplation of the message and influence of the cross of Christ and enter into his completed rest will we be able to have the recuperated energy to stand. How many here, I'm closing, so for the singers who want to come out, how many here feel like they need God's help to stand? To stand for your convictions. Help to stand for what is right. Help to stand when you're uncomfortable with something that needs to be addressed. Help to stand when you need to speak up or even God's help to be able to be silent when you're prone to speak your mind and say things you will later regret. How about help to stand in the face of fear? Any of these things resonate with you? I know they resonate with me. We can only find that help to stand in God's call to linger at the cross of our Lord and Savior. There is so many things to distract us from this lingering time at the cross. How many here need God's help to just stand and linger at the foot of the cross and allow your contemplation of Christ and his crucifixion to transform you and bring you from restlessness to the rest and assurance and confidence the cross offers? God will do it. He has promised in John chapter 12, verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples, that's a promise that includes you, by the way, to myself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together, Lord, we are so thankful to hear about Jesus. The power of his cross, the life that he emptied and the rest that he was able to have in that tomb, Lord. And he didn't remain in that tomb. Aubrey's going to be talking about that tomorrow. He resurrected. And it's because of those things, Lord, because of the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we have hope today. Lord, help us to be able to stand. Give us that help to linger in your word and prayer. Lord, there's so many things that distract us, pull every direction, Lord, that seem more important than taking that thoughtful hour to reflect upon your word and you and all the things that are more important than what the world offers. We're asking for that promise there in John 12, 32, become a reality for us, Lord. Draw us to yourself and give us the strength, the hope, and the peace and rest we need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.